Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Attorney David Bianchi represents victims of hazing incidents around the country, and he describes his client, Danny Santulli, as the victim of the worst incident of hazing in the history of the United States. Danny was a student at the University of Missouri, and he was involved in a hazing incident which left him blind and unable to walk. Uh, Danny's life is forever changed. David Bianchi represents Danny and his family, and he's here with me today. Welcome to the podcast, attorney David Bianchi. You represent Danny Santulli, who you have described as the victim of the worst hazing incident in the history of the United States. Tell us what happened to your client. He was a, uh, a pledge at uh, Fiji, Phi Gamma Delta, at the University of Missouri. And uh, like so many of the other pledges, they uh, made him do all sorts of things for several months. And uh, it all culminated on October 19th of last year, where they had a traditional event that they call Pledge Dad Reveal Night. And they brought 40 pledges to the fraternity house and uh, marched them all down into the basement. They had to all take off their shirts and they were blindfolded. And they were then introduced to their pledge dad. So if you can picture a line of 40 pledges and then 40 fraternity members standing in front of each one, and then the fraternity dad hands the family bottle of alcohol to the fraternity pledge. And Danny was handed his family bottle of vodka. And per the tradition, they're supposed to drink the entire bottle within about two hours. And he started to do that. And uh, incredibly, all of this was done in a fraternity house that had real-time surveillance cameras. So we were able to see everything that happened. So he starts to drink it and gets sicker and sicker as uh, the time goes on. And then in the middle of the whole thing, one of the fraternity brothers approaches him, and it's on video, and hands him a tube, and Danny has to put the tube in his mouth, and there's a funnel at the other end of the tube, and then they start pouring beer down his throat as he's working his way through the entire bottle of vodka. He then, not surprisingly, collapses. They bring him to another part of the fraternity house where they throw him on a couch, and he just sort of lays there getting sicker and sicker, slides off of the couch, that's uh, halfway onto the floor. They throw him back on the couch. And then they uh, abandon him. And they just sort of uh, go their merry way. And then later in the evening, as they're walking through the room, they see that he's there, but he's not responsive. And he, uh, he's dead. He stopped breathing. So they scoop him up. Uh, they don't call 911. And they decide they're going to carry him out of the house, put him in a car, and drive him to the hospital. And as they're going out the door... Uh, again, it's on camera. They drop him on his head and then they put him into the car, drive him to the hospital. Some people come out from the hospital, do CPR, they get his heart started. Uh, and he's been left with massive brain damage. He's permanently blind. He cannot walk, talk, or communicate in any way. Uh, his medical bills to date are about $2 million and he'll require 24-hour care for the rest of his life. And all of this damage, David, is as a consequence of the alcohol poisoning that took place during the hazing incident. All of this resulted from that night? 100%. The, his blood alcohol, as you may know, in most states, 
you are presumed to be legally intoxicated for purposes of driving a car if your blood alcohol is 0.08. So 0.1 is above that number. And then you have 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. Danny was 0.468, which not many people live with a blood alcohol of 0.468. But his uh, severe intoxication resulted in cardiac arrest, and that's when he stopped breathing. And he was uh, uh, without oxygen for a prolonged period of time. He died. He actually died uh, for a moment is what you're saying. Uh, th that's correct. And he will never see again. He will never see again. He is permanently blind, uh, permanently confined to a wheelchair, David. What is his prognosis? Is there any hope for him going forward? There's always hope in this world. Uh, we could all have hope. But realistically, Danny will never get any better than he is today. The brain damage is too massive. He was, he was without uh, oxygen for simply too long, and he's always going to be the way he is today. There were 23 defendants in this case. You settled with all but two of the 23 defendants. Is that accurate? Well, not exactly. Let me explain that. I don't know how many total fraternity members there were of this chapter at the time, but maybe there were 100. And, and I sued uh, 23 defendants. Uh, I sued the national fraternity, Phi Gamma Delta. Uh, I sued the fraternity president who organized the whole thing. The vice president, he was uh, also organizing it. I sued all of the officers. I sued his pledge dad who handled the handed the bottle of alcohol to him. And I sued a number of other guys. So I had uh, 21 individuals sued. And then once I got the police report, which I didn't have when I originally filed the case, it was 144 pages long, I learned about two others. Uh, so I amended the case and I brought in two additional defendants for a total of 23. Uh, and as of this minute, I've uh, settled with the original 21 individuals, plus the national fraternity, plus the housing corp. They're all settled. And now I just have claims against the two I just recently brought in. Can you give us a sense uh, in total? I'm not going to ask you to identify the amounts for which any particular defendant has settled. But can you give us a sense in total uh, about uh, of the amounts that Danny will now recover as a result of these injuries? Well, pursuant to the uh, terms of the settlement agreements with everyone, the settlement amounts are confidential. But I can tell you, his, uh, his uh, medical expenses and cost of care going forward is astronomical. And uh, Danny now has more than enough money to take care of him for as long as he lives. With all of his medical needs going forward, he has all that he will need going forward. But you know, David, You've been doing this kind of work for a long time. I know I read a piece in the New York Post where you described this as the worst incident uh, in 30 years. That's how I introduced you. You've been doing these cases uh, for 30 years, I should say. Uh, this is the worst incident you've ever seen. How do you value as this sort of injury? I mean, you know, it, it's one thing, like we're both lawyers. It's one thing to kind of intellectually come up with a number and say he's this young and he was going to have this many years ahead of him. There's kind of a formula to it, but 
really, you know, when you as a lawyer and a human being are looking at this young man who was really at the prime, I mean, in college at the prime, everything's ahead of him. And now so much has changed just for you as a human and a lawyer. How does it impact you? And how do you really even come up with a number when you're looking at this kind of trauma from which someone will never come back? Well, you know, when I get involved in these cases, it's too late for me to do anything about what has already happened. So all I can do is to try to um, obtain the largest possible recovery for the victim or the victim's families when these young men die, and they die a lot. All I can do is try to uh, obtain the largest possible recovery so that I can do what the civil law provides for, which is to try to compensate for the economic and the non-economic damages. Now, there are two parts to the answer to your question. The economic analysis in a case like this is based upon the cost of care. What are the doctors going to cost every year? What are the therapies going to cost every year? Uh, what is the home care going to cost? You can come up with a number for that. There are people that specialize in that. And then you can run that number out over the expected life of whoever the plaintiff happens to be. We've done that. But then there's another part of these civil cases, which is the non-economic damages, where a jury is allowed to award compensation for the pain and suffering of the person who's injured, the loss of capacity for the enjoyment of life, the inability to have any sort of familial uh, relationships ever again. Those are the so-called uh, intangible damages, and that's entirely up to a jury. There's no rule as to what they can award. There's no chart. You don't look it up at a chart. You present the evidence to a jury. You can try the case to 10 different juries. You'll get 10 different numbers. It's whatever the folks on the jury want to give on top of the economic damages. But when you look through uh, how horrific this particular case is, there's no amount of money that can adequately compensate him for what has happened. I can't even begin to contemplate it. Are there any criminal charges pending or being contemplated as a result of this? That is a very good question. Uh, as you know, um, I don't have anything to do with whether or not criminal charges get filed. That's up to the prosecutor. Uh, Missouri has an anti-hazing law, just like 48 other states. And it basically says that if you haze someone and you seriously injure him or he dies, then you can be charged with hazing, which is a crime in the state of Missouri, like it is in almost every other state. So as of today, we're at about the nine months since this has happened. The prosecutor, unfortunately, has only filed criminal charges against three people. A misdemeanor charge uh, against uh, Alex Wexler, who is the person who gave the tube to Danny that Danny put in his mouth and they poured the beer down his throat. He, he got a, a criminal charge of providing alcohol to a minor, misdemeanor. And then there were two other individuals who had felony charges filed against him by the prosecutor. Ryan Delante, who was the pledged dad who gave him the family bottle of uh, vodka, he has right now pending that criminal charge. And then um, one other uh, fraternity member, uh, the vice president, Schultz, who has a criminal charge uh, pending against him for having brought the alcohol into the house for the event. But that's only a total of three. There really should be about two dozen fraternity members who violated this hazing statute, and they are guilty of hazing under Missouri law. 
But for some inexplicable reason, after nine months, a 144-page police report, dozens of hours of real-time surveillance video, the prosecutor's office has uh, decided not to enforce the hazing law against anybody else. And this has led to uh, a lot of very upset people. And if you go to the website, justicefordannysantuli.com, you will see that um, folks have started this online petition demanding that the prosecutor file hazing charges against all these guys who are responsible. And as of uh, the middle of July right now, there are 71,000 signatures on the petition. And go read the comments that people have been posting. They're outraged by this, and we're hoping to see more criminal charges filed. David, I haven't seen the entire surveillance video. Uh, I've seen snippets. And it leads me to this question. Is there any other potential liability that you might consider here, perhaps for the university? Some of these incidents, it's hard to tell where everything took place, but does the university have some duty to supervise in this context? Is there some negligence uh, on the university's part uh, as a result of this, in your view? You can um, almost always make a case against the universities when these fraternity incidents happen. You can almost always make the case. Uh, I chose not to sue the university in this case, although I, I could have. But um, the entire police investigation here was led not by the Columbia, Missouri Police Department, but by the University of Missouri Police Department, the Mizzou Police. And they did a very fine job. Uh, and produced this 144-page report. And I didn't see any benefit in uh, including the university when their police department were working so hard on behalf of the family to do a good investigation. And we didn't need any additional resources from the university to properly compensate Danny. But you could make that case. I've only sued a university one time in a hazing case. And that was the Antonio Cialis case at Cornell when he died a couple of years ago because they wouldn't give us the time of day. And they knew that this event was going on at Cornell and uh, should have stopped it and didn't. And that, that's usually the way you get to the university. Is there an argument to be made that the university is in the best position to ensure that these sorts of events don't happen again. So for instance, when I look at the portions of Danny's video that I saw, I mean, it's taking place in university spaces. So couldn't one say that the university should do a better job of supervising its spaces so that these incidents don't happen? Well, to be technical about this, this happened at the fraternity chapter house that was not owned by the university. It was owned by a housing corp. And the housing corp is owned by, I believe, some fraternity alumni. Now, it looks like it's on university property, but it's, it's uh, and you're walking around the campus and it looks like a campus building, but technically it's owned by a housing corp. Is the university in the best position to stop all of this? Uh, I think the answer is no. The people that are in the best position to stop this are the guys who do it. They're the ones. Because I think it's unrealistic to expect the universities to be babysitting 
seven nights a week throughout the school year to make sure that these fraternities don't do things that are illegal, dangerous, and violate the anti-hazing policies of the university. The universities all have anti-hazing policies. Most states have anti-hazing laws. So they're doing something to try to stop it. They make the Greek community attend a big seminar every fall in most campuses where they lay down the law and they say, you cannot haze. If you, if you haze, you're going to get in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. And they make the Greek community show up. I've been to these things. They've invited me to speak. And you look out into the audience, two, 300 guys sitting there, and they're basically staring at their iPhones when you're up there making a presentation and it goes in one ear and out the other. What is so galling about what happened to Danny Santulli is that 13 days before this happened to him, the university issued sanctions against this chapter for hazing and alcohol violations uh, because of a previous event. And in these written sanctions, which I have, they said that you're on probation, you're sanctioned, you cannot have uh, any alcohol in the house until sometime in the year 2022. And, and within a few days, they went to work planning this event, which took place 13 days after they were sanctioned. They don't care about these sanctions. They seem to do nothing. So we've got to come up with a new way of trying to stop this. While also recognizing, to your point, the best people to prevent these sorts of incidents are those are those who are engaging in it in the first instance, because you're not going to ban. I mean, you know, even if you say we're going to ban this fraternity or we're going to ban this group, people want community. Like they want, they like the sense of belonging. Uh, they like to pledge. They like feeling like they're a part of a family of sorts. So you're never going to get rid of all of the fraternities. You're never going to get rid of all of the fraternities and sororities uh, who treat their pledges harshly. What is the best thing, David, going forward to be done? Because if young people, you know, who are excited about college and excited about Greek life, I didn't pledge by, did you pledge? Are you in a fraternity? No, I, I was not. Uh, you know, I, I have many friends who are, and they've actually taken those relationships uh, into their, you know, as they get older, uh, those relationships are very important. They do become like family. So since you know people are going to pledge, and you know there will be some hazing, uh, we should all hope and pray that uh, the lesson from Danny is that people will be just a little more careful with one another when they are uh, doing some of these things. But what would you like people to know, David? They're going to pledge. There's going to be some hazing. Um, this activity, to some extent, will continue somewhere. What do you want people to know? And more specifically, what do you want people to know about your client, Danny, whose life will never be the same? Well, uh, one thing I've concluded after many decades of doing this in cases around the country is uh, it can happen to the very best of kids. No parent should think that because my son or my daughter went to a fancy prep school or is a straight A student or is just the most wonderful child that it cannot happen to them because Antonio Cialis at Cornell was an amazing young man, rock star resume, and it happened to him. And Andrew Coffey at Florida State, he died from this. 
fabulous kid from a great family. Danny Santulli, the finest family you could ever hope to meet, and he's a super guy. It happened to him. I could give you 25 more examples. It can happen to the best of kids because when you put young people uh, away from home for the first time in a house, no adult supervision, you throw alcohol into the mix, you, you have uh, traditions that uh, they want to perpetuate, which often get out of control the drunker they get. It's a recipe for disaster. You know, since the year 2000, 65 fraternity pledges have died as a result of hazing in the United States. 65. That's one every four months. So it's going to happen. It's going to keep happening. Your child, uh, if I was chatting to the parents, uh, your child is not immune from this. And it could happen to them uh, no matter how great they are. So you got to talk to them about it. And I think you got to be blunt about it. And they need to see the details of how bad it could be. And Danny Santulli uh, comes from one of the finest families I've ever had the uh, opportunity to represent. I mean, uh, his father works for a big uh, computer company that you would know well. His mother is a banking executive who has quit her job to take care of her son. His brother works for IBM. This is a very sophisticated, educated, wonderful family, and yet it happened to their son, too. It can happen to anybody. I think it's really important uh, what you just said, that sometimes these horrible tragedies that result in young people getting caught up, you know, they just get caught up in an environment or a situation or something with a group of people who are important to them or who they want uh, uh, to have some relationship with, you know, it can... Uh, that sort of decision making um, happens can happen to anybody across the board, you know, regardless of what you look like, what your parents do, or or how you grew up. Uh, I'm really compelled by the fact uh, that this is your practice. Uh, you do these cases. You've been doing these types of cases for the last three decades, uh, David. Why this? What drew you to representing people who found themselves in these these kinds of tragic situations? Well, I was introduced to it for the first time in the Chad Meredith case. Uh, Chad was from Indiana, came from a very fine family, and he was uh, the, uh, got a baseball scholarship to the University of Miami down uh, here in Florida. And they hazed him, and he uh, ended up drowning in a lake at the UM campus. And I was a relatively young lawyer at the time, and I ended up, uh, my firm had this case and they asked me to work on it. I did. We tried the case, resulted in the largest fraternity hazing verdict ever in the United States to this day, all these years later, still is. And from there, I just couldn't believe this happened. So I, I went to work and wrote a new, what I thought was a new and better hazing law for the state of Florida. And I went up to the legislature with Mr. and Mrs. Meredith and we lobbied the legislature, legislature for it. We testified and it passed both houses of the Florida legislature without a single no vote. Jeb Bush was governor at the time, and he was so impressed with this new law, he flew down to the UM campus, signed it into law where Chad died. And as a result of that, and it's called the Chad Meredith Act. As a result of that, uh, I got involved in more hazing cases, became friendly with the families. Then when Andrew Coffey died uh, up at Florida State University in Tallahassee, from a, a pledged ad reveal night, he had to drink an entire bottle of bourbon. After uh, I resolved that case against several dozen defendants, I made amendments to Florida's law based on all these cases I had had, but I thought made it better. 
which incentivizes people to call 911 so they don't just sit around and do nothing when they see a pledge in big trouble. And that passed the legislature with, without a single no vote. It's called Andrew's Law, and Governor DeSantis signed it into law, and it's now the law in the state of Florida. So I've just been doing this with increasing frequency, doing my best to try to make these recoveries for the families, and doing my best to try to change the laws to make things a little bit safer and to be tougher on the guys who do this. David, what is the actual legal definition of hazing? We've alluded to the fact that people will join fraternities. There will be some stuff that, you know, or sororities, you know, there are processes that folks go through that, um, you know, where there are some periods of discomfort. What is hazing legally? Well, uh, first of all, it's defined by state law, not federal law. So there are 50 different definitions because we have 50 states. Every state defines it a little bit differently, but they're very similar in terms of the definitions. It basically is any sort of conduct towards another, which is a part of uh, some sort of a process that a person uh, has to go through in order to gain admission into an organization that uh, puts that person at physical or emotional risk that ultimately results in physical or emotional damage. That's pretty much the definition of hazing. And if the hazing results in uh, just the possibility of harm, then it's usually just a misdemeanor. If it results in a minor injury, it's uh, usually just a misdemeanor. If it results in serious injury or death, then in many states, it's now a third degree felony. So uh, it, it, it varies. How's Danny's family doing? Mm. I wish you could meet them. Uh, they're just terrific people. I don't know how they're holding up like they are. They're so much better at this than I ever would be if this had happened to my son. I think about it all the time. I see these families. I get to know them very well. And I'm just amazed at the resiliency of these families to deal with these horrific, horrific consequences. The Santuli family has rallied around Danny. Danny, uh, after eight months in hospitals, I uh, was recently transferred to his to his home in Minnesota. He's being taken care of at home by his mother primarily, but also his father and other family members. They've got the house set up for this, and they're doing this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They can hire anybody they want to because they've got all the funds they're ever going to need to take care of them. But Mrs. Santuli and the rest of the family are trying to do it on their own. And every time I talk to them, they're polite and well-spoken and nice and grateful, and they're just amazing. Nothing will ever compensate for what daddy's lost uh, and what the family's lost, but uh, you are a reminder, you are a reminder to those of us in law that um, when horrible things happen, at least a lawyer can show up and try to bring some relief. And so it's satisfying to know that this family will have the financial wherewithal to look after this young man. But gosh, that just feels like such a hollow victory, such a hollow victory when you think about the life that was uh, 
the lives, really, that were forever changed. Attorney David Bianchi, David, you represent Danny Santulli. We're going to put up on the bottom third a justice uh, for Danny Santulli. The advocacy on behalf of Danny uh, continues. Uh, David, thank you for your advocacy, and we are really sending our best and our prayers uh, and our best hope and best energy to Danny and his family. Thank you very much, and thank you for focusing on it.